I want to talk to you about a book like no other. All right? A book like no other. And I want to give you the motivation for this message tonight. This is going to be different. I like challenging myself and trying to preach different types of messages. I like to preach a series on one verse. Preach four messages out of one passage of Scripture. I like to preach on a whole book in one message if I can. Uh, one time I was asked to preach on the, uh, the fourth verse of a song. And I came up with 63 points to that message. And I did it in 45 minutes. I think that keeps me fresh. It keeps me thinking. And so tonight, I want to talk to you about a book like no other. I heard a sermon uh, last week from a fellow named Charles Jackson. I don't know the guy. He might be an Episcopalian uh, preacher for all I know. I just, heard, I just stumbled across this sermon. And he was talking about America's greatest asset being the Bible. And I thought, man, that's a great, that's a great thought. And he said a lot of stuff I had taught in series format. I'd taught about the inspiration of Scripture. I'd taught about the, uh, uh, the infallibility of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. I've taught series on how we got the Bible. And I've, I've, I've done this in a systematic way. But what drove me to this wasn't so much his sermon as much as it was another preacher. There was a preacher who said, if you don't read your Bible every single day, seven days a week, you need to repent and go read your Bible. Then he went on to say, if a preacher doesn't read his Bible every single day, seven days a week, he's probably not qualified to be in the ministry. Some of you are giving me the slant eye and some of you are giving me the nod. Let me give you my perspective on that. Where in the Bible does it say, read it every day? Considering most of the time in history, mankind hadn't had access to a Bible. Now look, I think you ought to read your Bible. But I think coming up with some legalistic rule about how you're supposed to do it is just nuts. And I think calling people sinners for not going by your legalistic rule is wrong. Where in the Bible does it say, read the whole thing in a year? I probably could have done that under Moses. We only had five books back then, the first five. We got 66. We didn't even have chapters and verses until a few hundred years ago. Where did we come up with the idea of reading four chapters a day? I want you to read your Bible. And I'm not going to get up here and make up a bunch of rules and try to make you abide by them and guilt trip you for not reading your Bible regularly. And I'll be the first to confess, I don't read mine seven days a week. But I'll tell you this, I've read over a third of it since Thanksgiving. I don't know what that average is out to, but I'm reading the Bible. I'm just not doing it on some humanistic scale. All right? Now, why is this a book like no other? I've got, just because I know you're curious, five points. <laughs> you thought I was going to say ten, didn't you? I got five points. Number one, penmanship. This book is like no other based upon its penmanship. Now, I got a lot of subpoints, But under the penmanship, let's think about the period of its writing. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Those first five books were written by him. Moses writ, wrote those in the wilderness. We know that because that's where God gave him the law. Exodus is the account of being in the wilderness. 
Moses dies in the wilderness. He's forbidden from going to the promised land. So Moses had to have written the Bible while there in the wilderness. Now, if that's the case, and we know that it is, Moses entered the wilderness from Pharaoh in 1446 B.C. That's a historical fact. Whether you believe the Bible or not, that's a historical fact. That's when the Hebrew slaves were released from Egyptian bondage. You can get that from secular history or you can get that from the Bible. If I'm choosing, I'm going to get my information from the Bible and judge secular history accordingly. John wrote his manuscripts in the latter part of the first century. Sentence to the Isle of Patmos. All right? Let's just go from 1446 to the latter half of the first century. Can we agree with round numbers? We're looking at roughly 1,500 years. 1,500 years. The book of Job is believed to be the oldest book in the Bible. When was it written? Nobody knows. I'll deal with that a little more in a minute. Nobody knows. But the Bible was written over a span of 1,500 years. What was Americans doing 1,500 years ago? They were making flint rocks into arrowheads and beating drums and living in tents. Because there were no white Americans in this country 1,500 years ago. What was Europe doing 1,500 years ago? I'm talking around 800 A.D. Huh? Fighting? What was the science like in around the year 800? Weren't they still putting leeches on people to suck the bad blood out? They were doing that 200 years ago. That's how George Washington died. Yeah, it wasn't 80 years ago they were recommending smoking for your health. Snuff used to be called dental snuff. Good for your teeth. Build strong bones. Let's back up 1,500 years and pick somebody to write a book that would be pertinent to today. And you've just backed up to the first writer. And it's been two th almost 2,000 years since the last writer. Look at this book at its period of writing. Number two under the penmanship, look at the people of its writing. I want you to think about the people that wrote this book. The first writer was Moses. Let's look at Moses' background. He started out in Pharaoh's palace. Well, he was born in a river. But he grew up and was raised until he was 40 years old in the palace. Then he killed a man and he fled into the wilderness as a fugitive of justice. Then he became a shepherd. And then at roughly 80 years old, God appears to him and sends him back to lead Israel out. And at the end of his life, in those last 40 years, is when he writes this book. So he starts out in a palace, ends up in the sheepfold. He writes the first five. Now we've got David. David, opposite of Moses, started out in the sheepfold, ended up in the palace. Moses was a fugitive of justice because he killed someone. David was a fugitive of justice because he killed someone. David killed Goliath, the enemy, and, and uh, Saul hated him for that. Moses killed an Egyptian and had to flee. David hadn't done anything wrong. God chooses both to write his book. Then let's talk about Solomon. Here's a unique writer. 
Solomon was born in the palace, lived in the palace all his life, and that's all he knew. He was the wisest, wealthiest king that Israel had ever had. You couldn't pick anybody on the level of Solomon today to write the Bible because the wealthiest are not always the wisest and the wisest are not always the wealthiest. God takes Solomon. And I can't look at all the writers. I, I know we've got time. We got the prophet Amos here. Amos was a farmer, a herdsman, and a picker of sycamore fruit. Zacchaeus fell out of a sycamore tree. That's another place you find it in the Bible. You know what a sycamore is, right? Sycamores are those white trees with the great big leaves that never rot. They don't look nothing like the sycamores in Israel. It's a total different tree. I thought about eating sycamore fruit, and they got a little ball on the end of them, kind of like a, a sweet gum ball. And I'm like, they used to eat that? So I, got, I Googled it, Joseph. I'm smart enough to Google things. Sycamore fruit grows right up on the branch, and you have to climb the tree. You can't shake it. You've got to climb the tree and pick it. Amos was a prophet, got a book that he wrote. He climbed trees and picked fruit off of it and kept sheep. Luke was a physician, a doctor. Here's a learned man in science and medicine. Peter was a fisherman, and by all accounts, a pretty rough one at that. I would imagine the joke about uh, cussing like a sailor probably could have applied to Peter. He's a hard man. They called him the rock. He's a very hard-turned man. And then we take Matthew, who was a publican. He was a tax collector. This guy's a politician. And then we've got Paul, who's an actual theologian, trained at the feet of Gamaliel. Somebody that actually studied Jewish law. And then when he goes to write the Bible, he says, I count everything that I learned dung. That didn't profit me nothing, that I might gain what is in Christ Jesus. Paul threw away all the education he had. So when we look at the people that wrote this book, there's roughly, depending on who wrote what, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews, and there's some other books we're not sure about. Here's what we do know. There's roughly 40 authors that come from varied backgrounds over the course of 1,500 years. But there's one other thing we need to look at. Let's look at the place of writing. Writers are finicky people. They go to weird places and write books. They have cabins out in the wilderness where nobody bothers them and they can be quiet. They go on retreats. They get in think tanks. They go to centers of learning. They rent uh, classes out in the library and get lots of source books and put together their volumes. When we look at the Bible, these are places I know the Bible was written in. It was written in castles. I just told you Solomon and David wrote much of the Old Testament, much of the Psalms. It was written in caves by prophets who were not liked by the state at the time. Prophets who were in hiding. It was written in caravans, specifically one that traveled through the wilderness for 40 years. People that lived in tents, had herds, and no perfect place to stay. It was written in the clink. Paul wrote from prison many times. It was written in confinement. John wrote from the Isle of Patmos, sentenced, cast away, locked up. Now let me put something before you when I talk about a book like no other. I want you to go through history, back up to any 1,500-year section of history, and pick you the best theological writers you can find. But here's your criteria. You've got to pick fishermen, farmers, physicians, kings, 
politicians. You've got to pick men that were shepherds. You've got to, kick, you've got to pick men that were convicts, that had killed somebody. Pick your 40 from 1,500 years and see if you can compile a 66 book, 66 book book that didn't contradict itself and completed each and every chapter in harmony. This is a book like no other. I bet all of you have a bookshelf in your home. Some of you may have that much a book on it. Everything else may be something different. But I'll bet every one of you have a Bible in your home. And it's a book like no other. And you're reading Louis L'Amour and this book's sitting on your shelf unread. It's a book like no other for penmanship. It's a book like no other for prophecy. I want you to think about the prophecies of this book. People talk about the Mayan calendar. You know, those Mayans, they were smart. They had all kinds of stuff that came true. Have you ever looked at all the stuff the Mayans have written down? Like thousands of things they predicted. Eight of them came true. Friend, I could do that. You and I could get together one night and a couple of pizzas and some root beer. We could think up all sorts of crazy things, write down maybe four or 5,000 things that would come true. Eight of them came true. They would say, Harold and Brother Doug were prophets back then. They got eight out of 4,000. The prophecies of our book that have already came true, that were told beforehand in explicit detail and came true afterwards, makes this book a book like no other. I'll give you one Old Testament example and I could give you a thousand. Tyre and Sidon were two port cities to the north of Israel. Tyre and Sidon were wicked cities. They were rich cities. They were strong cities. Isaiah, in his book, devoted all, he's just writing what God said, chapters 23 through 29 tell us of the destruction of Tyre and Sidon. He wrote us, what is it, 66 chapters of Isaiah? 66. Seven of them deal with the destruction of Tyre and Sidon. And you go through there and you read all the stuff that happened at Tyre and Sidon. He wrote that in 725 B.C. 725 years before Christ was born. Rough numbers. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 4. Let me read it. It's just one verse. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. Talking about Tyrus, he will cast her out and will smite her power in the sea and she shall be devoured with fire. Sidon was on the sea coast. Tyre was out here on a little island just off the coast. Well, God said he was going to destroy them in Isaiah in 725. In 734, he said it again through Zechariah that he would destroy them. Well, Tyre bragged on her walls. Tyre was a sea, it was an island, and they had built walls right up to the water's edge. So you'd have to take a boat out there, make some kind of marine landing, and ferry your men up in smaller boats and climb their walls while they sat there on a rock pile <laughs> killing you. Nobody could do it. And they boasted in their strong walls. And God said, I'm going to tear your strong walls down. And I'm going to throw you in the sea. I'm going to cast you in the sea. Oh, God's not going to do that. He can't do that. You ever heard of this fellow named Alexander the Great? 
Daniel mentions him. Alexander the Great shows up. Let me make sure I get the year right. 322 B.C. And he overthrows Sidon on the coast. And all the rich people and all the politicians went out to Tyre. They took their boats out there and they got in the strong city out on the island. They can't get us. We're in the stronghold. He put a seven-month siege on them. And he got mad. And he took all the people of Sidon that he had captured. And he said, you're going to start breaking this city down in pieces. Isaiah said, this city will be brought to rubble. The citizens of the city under Alexander the Great took sledgehammers and broke the city down in manageable pieces to pick up and they carried it over to the river and to the ocean and threw it in the Mediterranean Sea. And they did this until they built an Izmuth. That's a fancy city word for a land bridge. They built them a rock bridge by dumping all the rubble from Sidon that was completely destroyed. They threw it in the Mediterranean until they got close enough to set up a catapult. And then they threw the catapult, they catapulted all of Sidon into the walls of Tyre until they were all falling down. And Alexander the Great spent seven months. And when he got up there, he destroyed the entire city. There were 40,000 people in that city. He killed 8,000 of them when he arrived. Executed them to show them who he was. The other 30,000 were sold into slavery. Remember Zechariah said you'll be thrown into the sea and you'll be scattered. Isaiah said you'll be scattered. Those 30,000 slaves were shipped all over the Mediterranean, sold into slavery, just exactly like God had said some 400 years prior. Friend, it's not just that. I could take you and show you what God said about Babylon. I'll turn you into a swamp, a habitation of owls. Babylon is sunk so low they can't excavate it because the water level's so high, it's literally a swamp. Wasn't that one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon? Wonder what happened to them. Our God said they're not going to be here. And he said it before it happened. I could take you and show you the Medes and the Persians. I could show you the Greece. I could show you Rome. I could show you Egypt. I could show you the Ammonites, the Philistines, Moab. I could show you all of these countries that God foretold exactly how they would go and who would rule them. And I can show you that God said it beforehand and it happened all exactly according to his plan. We talk about prophecy. Let's talk about not just the land. Let's talk about the prophecy of the Lord. I looked it up because I wasn't sure. Scholars can't agree. Somewhere between four and five hundred prophecies apply to the first coming and earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled all of them. So here's what I want to do. I want to take just the prophecies in the book of the Psalms that apply to Christ. On the cross. He was only on the cross for a few hours. I want to take just, not, not all of them. I mean, what am I, how am I doing on time? 30 minutes, gone. Can y'all listen fast? I'll try to preach fast then. I know promises, but I'll try. There's between four and 500 prophecies. In Psalm 22, verse 18, David foretold that they would cast lots for my garment. Those three men that were executed, 
they took their clothes off of them, and to be fair, they stripped their clothes and ripped them into even pieces and kept them. But when they came to Christ's inner garment, his tunic, they said, hey, man, that's all one piece, no seams. What's a good brand of clothing? I wouldn't know. Come on. What's a good brand of clothing? Come on, what's a good, huh? That's an Under Armour tunic. Don't rip that thing. Well, how are we going to decide who gets the nice garment? We'll cast lots. What those men were doing out of greed for a nice garment, David said some 15, or no, not 1,500 years earlier. He said, uh, how long ago was David? 900 years earlier. 900 years earlier, David said they'll cast lots for his garment. When those three men were on the cross, the Jews went and besought Herod and said, hey, you've got to break their legs. We don't want them to live into the holy day, which is tomorrow. We need to go ahead and kill them. So the way you sped up an execution on the cross is you broke the legs of the people that were on the cross so they couldn't push up with their feet and draw breath, and they suffocated rather quickly. So they went and broke the first guy's feet, and they came to Jesus, and he was already dead. And they didn't break his legs. You can't hardly break a dead man's legs hanging on a cross even with a hammer because there's no resistance. And they said, I, I can't break his legs, he's already dead. So they said, I'd stick a spear in him, make sure he's dead. So they speared him and they broke the other guy's legs. There was an order put out by Herod to break their legs. Christ's legs were not broken. You want to know why? Because in Psalm 34, 20, it says not a bone of his body will be broken. Even Satan knew that prophecy when he tempted Christ to, be, to jump down. Cast yourself down. The angels won't allow you to so much as stub your toe. Jesus, while he was on the cross, said, I thirst. One of the soldiers was feeling sorry for him. And he got a hyssop. It's just a long, slender plant with a long stalk. And it was used in the Old Testament in the uh, sacrifices to sprinkle blood on, on the altar and on various things, you're supposed to get a hyssop branch. It's part of the sacrificial system. The soldier said, oh, look, a hyssop branch. He went over there, he broke it off, he stuck a sponge, and all they had to give him was gall, vinegar. They dipped it in the vinegar and they held it up on the stick because Christ was on the cross and he touched it to his mouth and said, it is finished. That was the last prophecy that needed to be fulfilled on the cross. You say, why was it the last cross? Because Psalm 69 verse 21 says, they gave me gall and vinegar to drink. Psalm 22, 16, David said, they have pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced Christ's hands and feet. You say, well, Brother Harold, he was going to the cross. Wait a minute, friend. They tried to throw him off a bluff once and couldn't do it. They tried to stone him twice and couldn't do it. There was one way Jesus was dying. I'm just talking about the ones in the Psalms. We can go to Isaiah and see that he would be laid among the wealthy tombs. We can go to, to Zechariah and see all these other passages about what happened in his death. I just picked a handful from the Psalms talking about Christ in a couple hour window of his life. And I'm here to tell you all of that is there and more. When someone says, well, the Bible can't be trusted, you know what I say? You can't be trusted because you've never read it. If you read it, you would see that it's accurate 100%. This is a book like no other. Number three, it's preservation. 
I'm talking about his penmanship, like no other. Prophecy, like no other. Preservation. Two things we need to talk about under preservation. The autographs. The original. Talk to someone about the Bible. Here's what they'll say. Well, mankind's changed it. You know, they've changed it. They, they keep altering it. Show me the original Bible and I'll believe it. The original Bible's in your lap. It's been preserved. You say, but brother, I want to see the original to check it with. Where's the original? Do you believe the writings of Plato? Do you believe the writings of Aristotle? I don't mean that you believe they're accurate. Do you believe we have them? Do you believe Socrates? Were these, were these made up characters or were they real? Were they real people? How do you know that? Those originals don't exist. You believe in secular literature that the originals do not exist, but you won't believe in the Bible because the originals do not exist. The problem's not the autographs. The problem is this. Mankind, who hates the Bible, has cast all of this doubt on the authority and validity of Scripture. And here's what they've done. They've gone back and they found all of these little fragments of literature. And they've categorized them. Here's what they've done. They've said, here we've got three verses from Malachi. Over here we've got seven verses from Isaiah. Over here we've got one chapter and a half of 1 Peter. And so they found all these little pieces, and then what mankind does is he tries to date them based upon handwriting, based upon the, the, the ink used, the paper that was used. And he says, well, this is too old, this is too young, this is this, this is that. Uh, here's another thing man does. He carbon dates them. Carbon dating is absolutely nuts. If you believe that, you probably still believe in Santa Claus and the tooth fairy. That's more believable than carbon dating. Why? I looked up before I brought this lesson tonight. I said, I want to know what the ten oldest books in the world are. There's a dispute. You know why? The handwriting says it's this old, but the carbon dating says it's this old. You know what that tells me? They're guessing how old those books are. They're guessing. They don't know. Do you know what they do say? Job is definitely in the top five. But we don't know who wrote it or how old it is, but it's in the top five. How do you know that? Nobody knows. So, Brother Harold, what do we got to work on? We got fragments. We got some handwriting. And here's what else we have. The Bible has more old documents than any other book. Plato, you got one or two old copies. I looked up the oldest copy of Plato's work. It was transcribed in 825 A.D. Friend, we've got Bible documents from the time of Christ showing us the Old Testament, and it lines up perfectly. We've got Bible documents from the first and second century of the New Testament that line up perfectly. But you want me to go with an 800 and some odd year old translation that some monk took in some monastery that you lost until 1857 when you found it? That's got more authority than this? There's thousands of documents that testify to this. No, we don't have the autographs, and no other book has the original autograph. What we have is a book like no other. All of the fragments, all the paperwork, all the handwriting, it all dates back to the proper time. There's no confusion. There's no guesswork. 
We know when these men lived and when they wrote. Now let's talk about the accuracy. Nobody has an autograph of books this old. They don't exist. But can it be trusted? I would say yes. How many of you's Bible has 73 books in it? No Catholics? Catholics have 73 books. You didn't know that. Oh, they're Christians just like everybody else. <laughs> no, they're not. They got 73 books in their Bible. We have 66. How in the world did we survive the 73 book debacle? What about those lost gospels? Do you ever watch the Discovery Channel? I love it when somebody finds out I'm a preacher, you know. They, what about those lost gospels? Like they really got me, like I got you. What about them lost gospels? You know what I always say? When's God ever lost something? I mean, I see people reaching for their glasses. You know, where would I put my glasses? God don't need glasses. And if he did, he'd know right where they were. God never lost anything. It's not lost. It's just not in the Bible because it doesn't belong there. These 66 books have survived. And the reason that we don't have 73 is because those books were written in between Malachi and Matthew when God said, I will not talk. Guess what? If God said he's playing the quiet game, he wins. If somebody spoke between Malachi and Matthew, it wasn't God. Because he said, I'm not talking. And if you read those books, they don't line up with these books. Are they old books? Sure. Were they written in between Malachi and Matthew? Yes. But they're not scripture. And time tells. There's more of these 66 books published and circulated around the world than the Catholics are their 73 book Bible. And the reason being, the Catholics don't want you to read your Bible. They want you to get your information from them and they don't want to publish it. They'll tell you what it says. What about the Book of Mormon? I mean, that guy found them gold plates up in New England and then lost them. Golly, you had them and you lost them. I was reading in the Bible about a lady that lost a coin and she looked all over trying to find it. Didn't stop till she found it. Joseph Smith got gold plates with the Lord's writing on it. Lost them, couldn't find them. I would have New England plowed six foot deep from one end to the other. From the Atlantic to, the, to Canada, we'd find those missing plates. You want to know why they're lost? They never existed. You want to know a few facts about the Book of Mormon? It was written in the early 1800s. It has undergone, in less than 200 years, it has undergone 5,000 revisions. There are 5,000 passages in the Book of Mormon that have been changed. Now, I'm not talking about spelling. I'm talking about significant doctrinal changes, and it still doesn't jive from one end to the other, and it still doesn't line up with the Bible. You want to know why? This book has not been changed. It has not been altered. It's been around... 1,500 years before Christ when we started writing it. The Book of Mormon's been around less than 200. And they've whittled on that thing 5,000 times. This is a book like no other. It's been preserved. Proliferation, number four. How are we doing on time? All right. Proliferation. I'm a man under authority. You got kids in school, so we're going to get out of here at a decent time. Proliferation. Not only do we have it, but it's everywhere. 
It's everywhere. This book is literally around the globe. I mean, you can find it in any language. You can find it in any country. You can find it anywhere you go. It's free in motels. When I was in the sixth grade, everybody got a New Testament whether they wanted it or not. There's free ones in the back of the church. We send them everywhere. Why? Because this book is being spread like no other book's ever been spread. They smuggle this thing into countries. They sew it in the linings of their jacket. They, they sew it into the tops of their, their, their luggage so they get there and unsew it and reassemble it. The story's told of guys carrying Bibles up into China. Uh, their ship caught on fire. People were killing them. They were in a war. They threw all the Bibles overboard. People found them. It was a different language. They couldn't read it. They took them out and plastered it all over their walls because, you know, they got them rice paper walls. They put it all over the walls. Somebody from the other area came down and said, I can read this. They had complete Bibles plastered on their walls. Anybody do that with Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn? Huh? Moby Dick? A Charles Dickens classic? No, no, no. The proliferation of this book. Not only does it go everywhere and in every language and smuggled in, it's illegal in so many countries. There's things in it that everyone knows. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know what a David and Goliath story is. You didn't have to go to Sunday school to know what the Garden of Eden is. These are common knowledge things. The testimony of history, of the validity of these 66 books is astounding. Nobody's quoting the Maccabees in the Catholic 73 book Bible. What they're quoting is Isaiah, Jeremiah, 2 Chronicles 7.14, John 3.16, Philippians 4.11. Why? Because this book has been spread like no normal book. This is a book like no other. Number five, it's power. The Bible is no ordinary book. I hate to read. Went all the way through high school, read one book. Had to read some out loud in class. Did that. But the assigned books for book reports, I did the Red Badge of Courage. You could get it at the local movie place on VHS in black and white. It was very close to the book, and I knew where it differed. And I agreed to do the Red Badge of Courage every year. I've watched the Red Badge of Courage five or six times in my life. All I remember out of the whole movie is this. Better get back in the bushes, Reb, or I'll shoot you. Because the kid was standing out in the moonlight at night, and the Yankee was kind, didn't want to have to shoot him. Told him to step back in the bushes. I remember one line. I've watched it six times. The power of this book is not just a literary masterpiece. It's not just poetry. It's not just allegory. It's not just a neat story. It's not the greatest story ever told. This book has power in it. Well, what does the power look like, preacher? This book has the power to take a hot-headed man who's prone to fits of cursing and punishment, who deals in slaves and save him, make him a preacher, and have him pen Amazing Grace 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This book will take a man who used to win contests for cussing, who was so known to cuss and string together cuss words and make curses like no one had ever made before. The cussing tinsmith, John Bunyan, could read this book and then pen the masterpiece, The Pilgrim's Progress. You don't get that in any other book. This book here was able to take a drunk, a gambler, a guy that spent his days in bars and in, in uh, gambling houses. This guy was such a bad drunk and such a bad gambler that he would steal his parents' money, steal it out of their business, and leave and run away and go into another country and spend weeks drinking up and gambling away his parents' money, would get thrown in jail and his parents would get called and they would come and get him out of jail and bail him out and give him a job. This happened over and over and over until George Mueller of Bristol read this book. And when George Mueller of Bristol read this book, it changed him. It changed him to the point that he said, I want to build an orphanage for kids. And he built his first orphanage that would hold 300 children. And by the time that he had died, his orphanages had housed over 10,000 children and he had never asked anybody for one penny. It was also said of George Mueller that he read the Bible through about four times a year. Stick that in your yearly Bible reading plan and smoke it. It was said that Mueller had read the whole Bible through, and he had read other parts more often, but had read from Genesis to Revelation over 100 times. And he started out as a drunken gambler, stealing from his family's business, running away from home. This book has power. This book was able not just to take a drunken gambler, this book was able to take a wealthy professional athlete who was born into a family of luxury who would never have to work a day in his life, who was a professional cricket player and was a household name all throughout England and make him a missionary. C.T. Studd walked off the cricket field, one of the most valuable cricket players in all of England, and signed up with Hudson Taylor and became part of the China Inland Mission. He left there and went spent time in India. When churches were established there, he left there and went to Africa and gave the remainder of his life, walked away from, from prosperity to live on a mission field. This book has power. It's able to take the most gifted young preacher in all of England and set him on a course to be a pastor. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You've probably heard of him. They have a Martin Lloyd-Jones truck. He pastored Westminster Chapel in London for over 30 years. He was at the equivalent of what we would call a Mayo Clinic. The most gifted doctor there. And God called him to preach. And he walked away from a career as probably one of the premier doctors of his day. He didn't go immediately to Westminster Chapel. He went to a coal mining town on the coast. And pastored a little Methodist chapel to start off. This book has power. It was able to take a Baptist deacon's son who had a desire to be a great salesman and make a good living for himself and call him away from all of his desires and give him a desire to preach and send him to Pastor Lee Creek. It's got power. Now listen, 
I'm not going to tell you to read it through in a year. This is a book like no other. If it's sitting on your shelf and it's collecting dust, if it's sitting on your coffee table for the neighbors to see, shame on you. Pick it up. Read it. 